So where are we going today? Al's walked us through um, the first chapter and a half of Galatians. And today we're going to go over Paul defending the Christian belief in verses 11 through 14. And then he defines this Christian belief in 15 through 21. And his goal is to ensure that this precious message of salvation is protected and God's people don't fall into this false doctrine that's developed by man. A couple of quotes on that. Anthony DeMello, I didn't get this from anything biblical. He's a man who fused together being a Jesuit priest and then Eastern spiritualism. So basically he is a non-believer. But he wrote, and this was so appropriate, encouraging people to focus on the message and not the messenger. He says, sinners often speak the truth and the saints have led people astray. Examine what is said, not the one who says it. And that's so appropriate after last week. That is so appropriate. Now, the Christian version of what Anthony DeMello said is what Paul gave us in Acts 17 when he shared that the Bereans came together in a time of study after a message and went through the scriptures together and to verify what was being taught was sound. And this is kind of like what we do in community group when we discuss the previous message and go over it, what we learned from it. And it's always a good sign that when after I spoke, the group doesn't ask me to step out of the room for a minute. So it's good. Now, Paul does not mince words. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, Paul uses harsh language, much like Jesus did when he spoke to the Pharisees about placing overtaxing burdens on people. Paul tells false teachers they are accursed or destined to hell. So, the setting now that we see in Galatians, the setting we're in, it's the time of the apostles. These men who walked and learned under Jesus, first person account. Um, and even Paul, who later says that he spent three years learning the scriptures from the Holy Spirit. And what's amazing is those are the same scriptures he would have told you he knew very well more than anybody else as a Pharisee student. But now the Holy Spirit gave him open eyes to see what they really meant. So that's the time we're in. And I heard a comment from a pastor that said, imagine the joy of a Gentile to hear that they were the recipients of this grace promised to them through Abraham and to hear about it and hear about Jesus from an apostle who had walked with Jesus and had a first-person account of everything that took place. They were now benefits of this major gift. So, in the setting we're actually going to go over, Paul had been with the Gentiles, living with them, eating with them, worshiping with them. Then brothers from Jerusalem that had a wrong message came in 
and Peter shrunk back from living in community with these people, um, what he knew to be right. And he wanted to do that to avoid conflict. Paul is going to deal with that issue today. Now, the basis of it, this is what's cool about going through Galatians, because you can see other accounts of it like Luke gives us in Acts. So the basis of this is Acts 15, 1 through 2. Acts 15, the first two verses. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, hearing that message there, breathing that false doctrine, what is the basic error of it? The basic error of that is saying that you must be circumcised. It's grace plus works, right? What we see is Jesus' death, they're saying it's not enough. His death on the cross was not enough. Um, man has to help Jesus in order to be saved. And the Jews had a dilemma with this, right? I mean, you're talking, you're talking centuries. They've had the law. Their elders added their own man-made to the law. It's all they were used to. So to come in and say, you know what? There's no more law. It's just grace. It was hard. It was hard for them to flip that switch and just enjoy it. Peter had no problem with it until he was peer pressured. But other than that, it had to be hard. Because one of the things are, we've always been separated. Always been separated. Now can we really go hang out with Gentiles eat what they eat, add what they add to food. Can we do that? Can we share the same utensils? Can we do any of this together? Can we walk with them? Can we hang out with them? Or do we need to keep that kosher curtain in place that, that restricts what they can do with Gentiles? But Jesus had told them and God had told them no. Now, I mean, the big symbol of that, and they missed it, was when the curtain that separated the temple from the Holy of Holies was torn top to bottom. They missed that. So we're going to look at this passage in two ways. 11 through 14, we're going to see the gospel message defended. And then 15 through 21, the gospel message defined. So let's read the passage. Galatians 2, 11 through 21. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, if you live though a Jew, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles 
to live like Jews. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified with Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Though through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we just thank you so much for this passage. We thank you for what it means and the reminder of the gospel message and just that you were enough. You were enough. We can't praise you enough for that. Father, we thank you for your gift of Jesus. We just thank you for the cross and what it means, how ugly it was on that day, but how beautiful it was later when Jesus arose from the dead and all the promises through the Old Testament were now made true. We love you so much. Just quiet our our hearts and minds and help us to focus on you during this time. We love you so much. Amen. Okay, so the gospel message defended and said, when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, you may not get it, but in the original language, that is a great visual, opposed him. If you've ever played a team sport or if you've ever shopped on Black Friday, you, you're able to envision exactly what this means. It's, it's a hard picture of not letting someone buy, not getting around you. So that's what Paul did to Peter. He stood in his way, he's guarding him, and he's not letting him continue what he's doing both physically and spiritually, face-to-face, confronting him, going at it. Now, it's not a violent picture as we see when Paul and Barnabas argue over John Mark going on the second missionary journey, but it is very profound, and it's very stern. So we read that Paul must have had this incident on his mind, so I love the way he did this. Because normally when you have a conflict like that and time goes by, what happens? It's like water under the bridge. Paul wasn't letting it go. Paul was not going to let it go, and he wasn't talking behind Peter's back. He was fighting for the gospel, face to face, he was not going to let it go back to Judaism. He had come from that, which, if you think about it, it says a lot. Here is Paul, this devout Judaizer, so devout 
before his conversion, he was going to kill, torture, and imprison Christians in Damascus, knocked off his horse, was blind for several days, and then went and, and really thanked Jesus and learned again what the scriptures meant. So here this man knew what a burden Judaism was, and he was not going to let this gospel message that Jesus died for go back to that. And we saw Paul's passion in the opening, right? How this book started. Usually, Paul, after his greeting, is so gracious in his letters. But he wasn't in this one, was he? Let me give you an example. Remember, this is after the greeting. So in Romans, Romans, after the greeting, he says, First, I want to thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. 1 Corinthians, I give thanks to my God always for you. 2 Corinthians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians, blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The last one I'll share is Philippians. It says, I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Galatians, the only one, starts off, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. Wham. Paul was willing to also get in the church's face, not just Peter's, and oppose them when they so quickly refused the true gospel message and just listened to another man because they either feared or trusted him. Paul believed in Jesus' words and actions so much that he stated in here that Peter stood condemned in his actions. Folks, that's powerful speech. If we know the Bible, when you go to an apostle or an elder or a pastor and condemn them, the Bible says you don't do that unless you have really good cause. So here is Paul doing it. Verses 12 and 13. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So what was Peter doing here in the first place? Interesting note. Peter may have been here in Antioch at this time because of Herod's actions towards him in, in Acts chapter 12. Herod, if you remember, saw how it pleased the Jews when he killed James, the brother of John. And he was so bloodlust after that that he was going to do the same to Peter, right? He had Peter in jail, but Peter was rescued by an angel of God. And then later, in Acts 12, 17, 
in Acts 12, 17, we see Peter left word at the house of John Mark's mom, <coughs> excuse me, that he was okay. And then it says he departed to another place. This could be it. Which is amazing when you see all Peter gone through, right? Peter had the vision. I had a pastor long ago said when the carpet came down or the rug came down with all the food on it, that was Jewish junk food. And Peter was given permission to go eat it. So he had that vision. Then he was rescued out of certain death at this time. And then he went to Antioch and then he shrunk back. So Peter-like. So we see this pillar of a Christian church, the pillar, was demonstrating bad theology and was showing a fear of man. This did not just affect Peter, though. The actions were not isolated to just Peter. Um, we see Peter and the other Jews, and it tells us to include Barnabas, a mighty man of God, drew back from how they were supposed to be living. They all gave in to the pressure brought by these men who had claimed to be from James. And begs the next question. Were these men really from James or did they just throw out his name? I know where I work, one of the top government customers I have, people will always say, well, he said so. I'll go, okay, thank you. Did you say so? I didn't think so. Okay. So, and it, it happens with me too. I get people that will say, well, Bill, Bill, they told me Bill said, it's like, Bill didn't say that. So that's why I get in my mind here is, did James really send them? Because there's no way they were going to be able to call. You figure how long it took to travel there. They could have their way with that claim. So looking back in the Bible, though, if we want to see the idea on two occasions, did James believe in the circumcision party? We're going to see how he dealt with it. Um, and, and the idea that I get was James was 100% on board with Gentiles being included in the Messianic community with no strings attached. We see his agreement in Acts 11, 1 through 8. Acts 11, 1 through 8. And then we see it again in Acts 15. Acts 15. In Acts 11, 1 through 8, He's not called out by name, but he was no doubt present when the circumcised party was challenging Peter. And here Peter stood up. He used his vision to exclaim that God basically was bringing him in and nothing was unclean and nothing had to be done. In Acts 15, James plays a bigger role and he actually quotes Amos 9.11, stating that even Gentiles that are called by God's name, saved, believe, may seek to know God and maybe know Him further. But what's missing here in this part about Peter and the other Jews is also had to be the hurt 
and the confusion by these Gentiles. Here, a pillar of the church, basically an early Christian rock star, someone that walked with Jesus, had these stories, knew everything, living in their midst as one of them. And something that could not happen under the law, they were experiencing before he shrunk back and seeing firsthand the reality of this grace from Jesus, right? I mean, here he is. They've always been separated, generations, called unclean. And now Jesus is, is died and rose from the dead, and, and Peter was living with them. <coughs> and Peter, because of the fear of man, figuratively placed the curtain back up that was torn and was t- causing that separation all over again. That had to be painful for him. Verse 14, Paul speaking. But when I saw that their their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before all of them, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You know, I think, how did Peter, how did Paul see this act of Peter? Well, the passage says Paul saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Paul went to the head of the problem, right? It wasn't the men with the false message. The head of the problem was Peter. Spoke to Peter face to face and made Peter unable to escape. Remember that lockdown defense. And Paul measured Peter's actions against the truth. Not just any truth, but the truth of the gospel. And and did not just trust that it was okay because Peter knew what he was doing. There was no trust there. There was too much writing on the actions of Peter in his role as the church, Peter, the church, the person Jesus was building the church on, right? So Jesus tells him in Matthew 16, 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Paul knew this. Paul wasn't letting this go by the wayside. And where did this rebuke take place? Awesomely, it took place in Antioch in front of all the people who had been harmed. Now, what a powerful statement if you think about this. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The ultimate purpose of the law was to show people that they needed a Savior. And the Savior was promised to them all the way back in time, beginning in Genesis 3.15, telling them they were going to get a Savior. Here God had brought a Son, the perfect Savior, to complete His perfect plan. And a new era, a new era in worshiping, God was in place. Perfect freedom from the yoke of the law 
And Peter, who knew better, caused harm by the fear of these men. It boils down to, and I, and I really believe this, Peter failed to remember the power he had in the Holy Spirit. Now think about this, back to the beginning of Acts even. This is the same power Peter had when he stood up without being in formal Pharisee or scribe school. He spoke before large crowds on the day of Pentecost where he could have easily been drugged down and stoned. He stood up. He spoke to them. In the temple, he spoke and answered for why him and others were healing people. And when he was struck, he came out rejoicing and thrilled that he had been persecuted for Christ. Paul, on their hand, understood and remembered the power associated with the gospel. Paul's life was an example. He was no doubt destined to be the Pharisee, the Pharisee leader of his own era, but but he was called by Jesus, knocked off his horse, had a heart changed, and he served the one he was seeking to persecute. Was his life easy? No, no. His life was tough. He was targeted by false teachers of Satan, and ultimately his life ended in death. His experiences, he tells us to him in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 27. I think he understood life was short. He had a commandment to go share Jesus like we do, and he made the most of it. So he explains in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 27. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned and then left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. This was his life as a Christian doing the work of Jesus, where he could have been in the lap of luxury as a Pharisee. He will tell you right now he made the right decision, as if he had a choice in that decision. Okay, verses 15 through 21, the gospel message defined. So here in verses 15 through 21, Paul introduces some of the key theological themes that were going to dominate the rest of this letter. This section has three basic parts in it, in that verses 15 and 16 state the essential theological point of the section. 
Paul is telling us that he and Peter understood that they had been justified by faith in Jesus and not by works of the law. And the men from James wanted people to, to have faith in Jesus, but also fulfill the law. We will see the rest of the section Paul focuses on the negative claim of law and justification. 17 through 20 will explain how finding justification in Jesus has implications for the law. And then verse 21 will explain while righteousness cannot come via the law. So let's jump into this. 15, Peter is speaking, I mean, Paul is speaking to Peter here. And he says, Jews by birth. Paul is playing on the Old Testament view that the Jews had a birth privilege over the sinners from, a non, from among the non-Jews or Gentiles. Jews felt that Gentiles were excluded from citizenship in Israel and had restrictions, major restrictions like being in the temple. And they had no hope, therefore, since they were excluded from God. Even in Matthew 26.45, Matthew 26.45, give you an example of, of the Gentiles. Jesus was in the garden praying, and he went back to the sleeping disciples for the last time and said, Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is being delivered into the hands of sinners, or that Roman guard that came. And then Paul is springing a trap here. He's laying the bait by using the Gentile believers, which will be debunked later when Paul explains that all are sinners needing Jesus. Verse 16, here we come across one of the most debated verses in all of Paul's writing. This was a big, big statement in this era. Here we look at a new type of justification. It's not a menu. It's not based on the law, but only on faith in Jesus Christ. A lot of the remaining letter to the Galatians is elaborating on this verse. Paul makes the connection to his and Peter's faith in the middle of 16 when he says, So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not works of the law. So Paul is making some key points here. A person is not justified by works of the law, and we see that three times. In 16, and the second one is a person is only justified by faith in Jesus Christ not justified by works, then why do we impose them? You know, thinking about this week, it, I'm wondering why even denominations today impose strict rules designed by man and their leaders and not by God. I remember at the beginning of our marriage, Colleen and I attended a Southern Baptist church, and they had a strict rule of no alcohol. But gluttony was wide open. 
you could you could help yourself with the potlucks pot potlucks as many times as you wanted, and that wasn't an issue. Growing up in a Nazarene church, I still remember as a small child grabbing a book the size of one of our free Bibles we give away here, and looking at it, thinking it was a Bible, finding out it was a rule book to be a Nazarene. Amazing. Never read it. Maybe that's why I'm not a Nazarene. Um, even today, even today in, in other denominations, it's that same way. Um, and our only, our only reason and our only hope is not in that, but in this life, it's Jesus. We need to stay away from the phony restrictions and laws, and we need to focus on Christ. If we focus on Christ, we want to know how to please Him and obey Him so we grow more and more in our knowledge of Him and we know His Word and we don't have the episode Peter's going through right now. So I also want to point out here one thing that I had to realize myself is, is Paul is not arguing that the Gentiles need to be included in with the Jews as people of God. But Paul is actually stating, get this, that the Jews should be included in with the Gentiles. And what he means by this is that the requirements for faith now is a total reliance on Jesus. And that's for everyone. So the Jews need to abandon the law that they thought led to inclusion and focus on Christ. Because as he stated in the last sentence on verse 16, now Jews under the law are the same as Gentile sinners. Folks, that's revolutionary back then. Mind-blowing. And you see the trap that he set in 15. He's now calling the Jews, pointing out to them that by following the law, they're the same as Gentile sinners. 17. Paul is stating here that he, Peter, and the other true Jewish Christians are finding their ultimate justification in Jesus. Doing this, they have abandoned the law as a means of being justified in God. By doing this, they realize they were before Christ also sinners who needed a Savior. So true justification takes place as believers are incorporated into Christ. Peter and Paul, when justified in Christ, abandoned the need for the law. So Paul asked the question, he asked the question, in abandoning the law for Christ, does that make Christ a servant to sin? This reference to Christ being a sinner must have come from the accusations from the men that so-called came from James as they were bringing in the false message. So Paul, in very strong language, states, certainly not. A lot of emphasis on that statement. 18 continues. Paul's um, answer in 17 starts off with the word for, 
but it can be said a different way. Some translations do. Paul had just finished 17 with that emphatic, certainly not. And now we can begin 18. He continues the thought of 17 by stating, instead of four, you can say, by no means was Christ a servant of sin. In fact, we know it is just the opposite. Jewish Christians are not sinners in order to be justified with Christ. They have just abandoned, they've abandoned the authority of the law. Now, they would be sinners if they sought to build back up the law after God tore it down. In 18, we see a verb change. We go from a, from a plural we to now Paul is saying I. And we see that Paul is moving away from the situation with Peter and now moving on to the situation with Galatians. And we will dive head in next week as he confronts them. 19 is the build-up verse to 20. Because 19 and 20, Paul justifies his claims in 17 and 18 that what constitutes sin is not rejecting the law, but now after all Jesus did, it's to rebuild the law. Paul is saying that he is in a brand new relationship to the law since Jesus' death and resurrection. So since the transformation comes and through the act of Jesus, Paul uses that to explain his new character. He says he died to the law to live to God. There is a strength in this language we just don't see in the English Bible. And, and that strength Paul is using may reflect his own powerful experience in coming to Christ. His former role in Judaism, his persecution of many believers of Christ, according to that law, and now his full faith is in Jesus Christ and nothing else. Paul is getting across to us that we need to die to sin, die to the law, and the meaning is the same. We need to look at everything and die to what has bound us. 20, verse 20 is a keeper, and it's one to memorize. Paul is using death and the following reference to live over and over and over again to show us how radical this break is. Nothing is more radical and imagine that you're willing to die for something and then the impossible, you can be reborn to it. This concept made many smart people shake their heads and just couldn't even imagine it. Even we see earlier while Jesus was alive, smart people like Nicodemus couldn't get it. And the thought is so radical that Paul, later in chapter 6, says that his only boast is in the cross of Christ and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is telling us that the, to die to the law means that he's been released from the binding authority of the law. So Paul is telling us how foolish it is to try and rebuild 
that binding authority again. It's why would you do it? And dying to the law was not an end unto itself, but it enables us to live for Christ. So much so that in verse 20, again, we see a word used multiple times. Live is used four times. This is Paul emphasizing this new state of life over the law. I no longer live means that the old I, the old enslaved to sin I, and the law have been done away with. It is no longer. And it's replaced with a new I whose existence is due to Christ and the indwelling of this, of Jesus. Paul usually writes that believers live in Christ, but in this case, he wrote for the emphasis that Christ dwells in us. And Paul writes two parallel phrases here, that Christ loved me and gave himself for me. These phrases help to explain why Paul lives such a, a totally dedica- a life dedicated to the Son of God. Giving himself over gives us a picture of someone doing something on behalf of someone else. Crucified with Christ is a powerful statement in that day that because you imagine all these people in this era under Rome had no doubt witnessed the brutality of a crucifixion. And in our minds, it might help us to see that I have been executed with Christ. Verse 21, here as part of the definition of the gospel, grace comes in. Paul may have been using this statement that he does not nullify the grace of God to answer the men that came from James. And he, they may have been accusing Paul of rejecting God's grace. Excuse me, excuse me. Answer the men of James that may have been accusing them of rejecting God's grace by rejecting the Old Testament means of acquiring favor. Paul offers this statement as part of his final argument. For the truth, it is what he's been saying in this paragraph. Paul wants the Galatians and therefore everyone else who reads this to understand that Christ ushered in a free gift era and that era is called grace. He wants them to know that those who reject this free gift and cling to the law have alienated themselves from Christ. They felt human obedience could connect them with the righteousness. <coughs> and Paul tells them that this belief would mean that Jesus died for no reason. John Calvin said, For if we do not renounce all other hopes and embrace Christ alone, we reject the grace of God. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for what a a powerful section this was. Revolutionary in its day to a whole mind shift of believers.
from people that had grown up with customs and traditions to now pouring in and seeing this Savior from the Old Testament forward, seeing your message of, of a Savior, your message of a free gift by Jesus dying for us. We thank you for the strength of your word in Paul, that he was willing to fight for it under, under great pressure of, of, of peers that wanted wanted to keep ties to the old, the old religion. We thank you for this grace, and we thank you for what it means to us in this day that we can just shed everything and focus on Jesus and learn about him more. May we praise you always for this gift in this era, and we love you so much. Amen.